The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast. Dr. Taz. Your good health journey starts now. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Superwoman Wellness, where on every episode of this show, we are going to uncover the secrets to being superpowered and being the superwoman you're meant to be. Joining me today, another special treat. I'm so excited about this. This is Dr. Judy Ho on the show today. She's a licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, and she's co-host of CBS's Face the Truth and author of Stop Self-Sabotage, which will be on shelves everywhere near you. Dr. Judy is a tenured professor of psychology at Pepperdine University and a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. She's the two-time recipient of the National Institute of Mental Health Services Research Award and maintains a private practice in Manhattan Beach and hosts an active clinical research program and appears in an expert psychologist on television. She's currently a co-host on CBS's Face the Truth, and I could not be more thrilled to have her on the show today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Judy. Thank you so much, Dr. Taz, for having me on. It's an honor to speak with you. Well, I am excited. I think I've met you before in some of my, our media uh, paths that have crossed, and I remember just liking you so much then, and then I was super excited to see that you were joining me today. But this topic, I can't wait to get into this topic. This is really important. You have written a book about self-sabotage. The title, again, is Stop Self-Sabotage, Six Steps to Unlock Your True Motivation and Harness Your Willpower. What made you write about this topic, and what is self-sabotage? Well, self-sabotage, simply defined, is when we get in our own way. It's when a thought or a behavior undermines our best interest and conscious intention. So, you know, when people think, oh, I can never do this, so then you give up and don't try, that's an example of self-sabotage. Or when you act in a way that's counter to what's good for you. So, for example, binging half a cake when you know the importance of a healthier lifestyle. That's just another simple example of self-sabotage. And I was driven to write this book because I wanted to shine a light on this phenomenon. Self-sabotage is so common. People talk about it all the time and in their common conversations. And I just felt like it was time to try to come up with a simple six-step program that was concrete and practical and could empower people to be their best selves and have the rewarding careers, the fulfilling relationships, and better health, whatever area that they find, they're self-sabotaging it. And I think that in general, people really only self-sabotage in like one or two areas of their life. You know, generally, the rest of their life is together. But for whatever reason, this one specific area, they just get past the problems. And so this is sort of what the book is about. Well, I think it's such an important topic because I do think it's one of the biggest blocks for us accomplishing anything, right? Whether it's our health or our weight or that career or finding that perfect partner or whatever it is, it gets in our way and that negative voice will repeat itself over and over again. You know, I have lots of explanations and reasons, but at the same time, you know, I'm I'm still on that journey of trying to trying to shut down the voice of self-sabotage. What are some of the factors in your opinion? You've got all this great clinical psychology experience and, and research experience, what are, are you seeing on your end that I may not know about sort of in the exam room and, and through my observations clinically? What are you seeing? What are the most common reasons that we, especially as women, I think everybody does it, but women in particular are so prone to self-sabotage? Well, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think 
first of all, self-sabotage is universal. Self-sabotage is biological in some ways in nature, and there's an evolutionary aspect to all of this. And I know that we've, you know, discussed offline that we speak each other's language in that way. You know, sometimes we're pre-wired um, for certain things. And it's not that the entire thing is wrong. It's just that, you know, when it gets into a certain pattern, then it becomes self-defeating and we have to take a better look at it. And I believe that self-sabotage, first of all, is universal in nature because human beings are driven by two main things. You know, one, is to attain rewards, and the other mm-hmm. one is to avoid threat. I mean, that's the only way that we can survive. And in general, right. I think if those two things are in balance, it works out really well. So, you know, you kind of alternate between attaining rewards and getting that dopamine kick, whether that reward is like food or sex, things that are actually essential to our survival as a species, or psychological rewards, social rewards, you know, getting accolades, being liked by people, being told that you're doing a good job. You know, all of those things are great, but there's also a part of us that avoids threat. And sometimes that avoidance is a good thing. You know, it keeps us alive. You know, back in the day, we're avoiding saber-toothed tigers. Great. You know, thank you to our ancestors for allowing us to survive. (laughs) But then nowadays, the threat is more social. It's more emotional and psychological. So you end up sometimes turning that switch up too high and you end up doing more of the avoiding threat than you are going towards rewards. And so is this person going to reject me? I don't want to put myself out for this job because what if I don't get it? And then it'll be embarrassing. And those things end up holding us back. So I think that, you know, for for one really important piece of this is just that it is so much wired in us to some degree, and all of us might have a the switch flip um, at various times, but when it becomes a pattern over time, that's when it contributes to self-sabotage that gets in our way. Well, such an important uh, topic to, to really get into, but it's very, here's what I've noticed, it's very easy to talk about it, and it sometimes is easy to identify, right? Like, you know, someone gave me a challenge for 24 hours, walk around and count the number of times you stop yourself. You say anything negative about yourself, I don't look good, I'm too wow. fat, you know, my hair is not good, this is not good, my nose is too, whatever it is, you know, but count the number of times you do that in any given day and really try hard to shut those voices down. If any of you put yourself through that exercise, and I would challenge you, I'd give you the same challenge back to everybody out there listening today, just count how many times a day do you do it? When I when I did it for a uh, 24-hour period, and we'll count five or six of those, I, w- I was sleeping, so maybe that doesn't count. But when I did it, it was literally 50 times a day, a negative voice popped up in my head that I had to squash. So, And those are only the ones that I'm counting. Like, What, are, what about all the right. other subconscious ones? So what I found, both personally and with my patients and with all the amazing women that I meet day in and day out is that it's very easy to talk about this. It's very easy to even identify it. But how the heck do you bust it? How do you stop it? How do you prevent it from coming back? You know, what what works? Can you give us maybe some hacks that would work to make that negative voice go away? Absolutely. Well, you know, I think one thing um, that's really important is to understand where those negative voices are coming from. You know, like, how is this message being instilled in you over and over again? And I have an easy acronym to remember some of the underlying causes, because without that knowledge of what's causing it, it's going to be hard to address it. And so my acronym is LIFE. So self-sabotage happens because life happens. And so in my experience, 
everybody who has a self-sabotaging pattern has at least one of these four life factors, if not all four or maybe two or three. And the first one is low or shaky self-esteem. So when you have mm-hmm. a shaky self-concept, it's going to be harder for you to, you know, talk yourself into things. <laughs> you're going to you're going to be able to more likely talk yourself out of things because you don't feel good about yourself. You don't know if you really deserve good things. And so this low or shaky self-concept can be a big piece here. I stands for internalized beliefs. These are the messages that we learned as young children. That's when we're soaking up all the knowledge around us. And these internalized beliefs oftentimes first take on the voices of our parents. You know, maybe you had a parent who says, look both ways before you cross, you know, and uh, don't ever take a huge chance because there could be really big dangers out there. And, you know, you thought they were annoying when you were a kid. And then all of a sudden as an adult, you start to adopt their voice. And you're like, wow, I I don't know how that happened. But now I'm sort of doing what my parents were doing. And so these internalized beliefs can also hold somebody back. F stands for fear of the unknown. You know, that makes sense. As human beings, we need to be able to predict our surroundings. And if Mm -hmm. we don't know what's coming, that's scary. And some mm-hmm. people predispositionally and personality-wise, they have a more of a fear of the unknown than other people. And so they might be more pre-wired to fear the unknown, although I think change is hard for all human beings. And finally, E is for my perfectionists out there, these go-getters, type A people. Yeah. So E is for excessive fear control. E is for the fact that man, like I really need to be able to control everything before I can feel safe to do anything. And if there's anything else involved in the picture, then it's going to be a lot harder for me. And I think that these are, you know, the the women who have told me, wow, my career is like totally on point. I'm doing great in my career. But when it comes to a romantic relationship, I keep messing it up. And it's because when you're in a romantic relationship, there's a, there's a person that you can't fully control and her part. And um, I think oftentimes that can really hold people back because you know, they, they realize that this particular area of their life, they, they don't have full jurisdiction over and that makes them nervous. Yeah. So let's go over those one more time to make sure everybody got them. So L very quickly is? Low self-concept or shaky self-concept. Okay. I is internalized beliefs. Okay. And F? F is fear of the unknown. And last but not least is E, which is? control. Awesome. All right. So hopefully you guys are jotting that down or you've got it memorized if you're in your car or walking around somewhere. So think life as ways for you to evaluate and bust some of the uh, self-sabotaging maybe habits that you have. You talk a lot too about creating a blueprint for change. And, you know, I do this again, day in and day out, working with people and trying to help them uh, initiate change. And a lot of my energy and effort is spent in education. Like, this is why change is important. This is what it will do for you. But what happens when that person leaves my space whether it's the patient room, the stage, whatever it is, what happens when the person leaves that space? Why does change become so difficult? What are, again, the blocks that get in the way once you've been educated? What is now getting in the way? Well, Dr. Kaz, you bring up such a great point, which is, you know, when you go to um, a great doctor like yourself and you're getting all of this wonderful education while you're in the room, it feels amazing. You're like, yes, mm-hmm. I totally get it. I understand. Um, and then you leave and it's almost like it falls out of your head. And right. I think it's because, you know, when you have the person in front of you, you've got that positive influence, you know, you're telling them all of these things. It feels much more doable when you're there. I mean, you're empowering them with that knowledge and you're saying you can do it. You're encouraging them. 
And it's all right there in front of them. But the minute that they leave, then it becomes abstract again. It's more right. just kind of their thoughts. And as they think back to that interaction, you know, sometimes that memory changes. Like they're thinking back to all the things that you said, but then now there's the negative thoughts that will come in. Well, but I can't really do that by myself. I mean, Dr. Taz, you know, she gave me some great tips, but I don't know if I can do that without her in the room. I mean, that's just harder. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to lose even some of the education that they were able to receive at the time and felt so empowered by. And I think all of us human beings, I mean, we are, you know, we are visual creatures. We are creatures who need to sort of be reminded in the moment of what to do. And I think that's why visual tools have been very helpful. And, you know, one visual tool I know that has been very popular and has helped some people is a vision board. And Mm -hmm. I don't have anything necessarily negative to say about them. I I do know that they help certain people. However, I do think that sometimes it's implemented in such a way that can be self-defeating. So, for example, people will put on their vision board a $5 million home. But there's no prescription of how to get there. So by the end of the year, when they don't get the $5 million home, they're so upset with themselves. And I'm thinking, well, but what was the route to get that anyway? And, And in some ways, it was an unrealistic goal. And in some ways, this vision board just became like a vision board of failures. Right. So what's the answer there? Like, you know, what, how do you, so you call it a blueprint, um, on this vision board. How is there, like, I'm a, I, I do this day in, day out, just, uh, full disclosure guys. I mean, I am known for doing strategy after strategy, planning after planning, planning for the plan, you know, to try to make things happen. But, um, but like, what is a, what is a way um, and a rhythm, a disciplined way to do this. Um, you know, you create yeah. your vision board, you paint pictures, you draw the things that you want to see manifest in your life. But what needs to happen really more than that? Yeah, so my blueprint for change is different because it really has those step-by-step plans on how to stop self-sabotage as opposed to just this picture of like, wow, when I stop self-sabotaging, I'm going to become CEO of a company. I mean, yeah. I want you to reach for those goals, but like, how do we get there? Like, what's the underlying issues that are driving your self-sabotage and what are the concrete ways you can fix this problem? So the blueprint for change, much like a blueprint for a house, actually has the detailed plans of how you're going to use the house. You know, when you look at a blueprint and if you're actually a knowledgeable person in this area, um, then you should be able to if you're somebody who does this for a living. And that's behind the blueprint for change. It's where we summarize all of the work that you've done in the six-step program in my book, and you actually put everything on the blueprint itself. So you have one place to go look for everything that you need to do to stop self-sabotage. So what's on this blueprint? Well, the life Mm -hmm. factors are on there, so it reminds you exactly where the underlying causes are and, and which ones are affecting you the most. At the top of the blueprint, it actually also has your top five values. You know, we don't talk about values enough. As a society, we make goal after goal after goal. People have bucket lists. But why do you even have that bucket list item? Have you stopped and asked yourself why it's so important for you to run the marathon or why it's important for you you know, go parachuting? Whatever the case is, you know, why is that even on your list? Is it because one of your friends put it on their list or is it because it actually addresses something that's truly important to you. And so on my blueprint for change, I've configured it so that people have to make sure that their goals that they're trying to reach are configured and aligned with their top five values. And that way, you also have more of a motivation and drive because every time you look at it, you're like, oh, right. That's why I'm trying to pursue this goal 
because it's tied to my values. And that also helps you to tolerate the distress that's going to come up during these sort of goal pursuits, because anything that's worth going for in life is not going to be done without any negative at all, any apprehension, any anxiety, any challenges. And I think as a society, we focus so much on this concept of hedonic happiness, like the absence of negative emotions and just feeling joy and positivity all the time. Well, guess what? Nobody can do that. That's such an unrealistic expectation to put on yourself. Yeah, I love that. I love it's about defining. And you know what? It's so funny because uh, it's just a uh, such a coincidence. Well, there are no coincidences, but uh, in, within even our family, we're trying to define our values because that resonates mm. then with the choices you make as a family. And if you don't make value aligned choices, whether it's personally or whether it's in a family structure or in a community structure, then you internally self sabotage yourself, the family, the community. I mean, this resonates beyond us individually, you know, so, um, I just think that's such a great, yeah, I think it's just such a great way to think about it that like move from a value-based structure forward. I think that's the most important thing. We just Um, don't ask ourselves that question enough. You know, I think just this idea of like what values are, are even for us. Some people don't even know what values are. And so in my book, I have a values card sort that kind of helps you to figure this out. You know, there's obviously thousands of values in the world, but You know, I have 33 of the most common values that I ask people to go through a values card sort exercise. And that that way they can find out what those top five values are. Yeah, I I love exercises. I think that you can be hands-on with. And so, you know, that's one of the ways that you can approach, you know, working on goals. It's really not as much about the goal as much as it's about the values. And I describe values as sort of like the direction you want to be traveling. You never check a value off. I mean, you're not like, you don't really. Like, great, I don't need to be honest anymore. So, you know, it's like you always go towards the value, but the goals are kind of like the little stops, you know, along the way. So if you're imagining traveling on a highway, you're going north, that might be the value. That's the that's sort of the uh, the way that I would con- consider that. And then the stops you take, you know, to have a meal or to stop at the landmark, those are the goals. And then you get right back on the same freeway. So, you know, that's the way that I, I think people should just start to con- consider themselves when they think, what is a goal? What is a value? Why am I doing this? Because there's just so many different ways in which you can sabotage yourself if the goal is not aligned with something that's truly important to you. Because then why would you tolerate the distress? You know, what's the point of that? I'm just, you know, I don't even know why I'm even doing this goal in the first place. And I've also had people tell me that after they reach a goal, they feel kind of empty. And I'm like, well, maybe you feel empty because that goal wasn't really directed towards any values. Yeah, I love that. And for anybody out there who's listening right now, can you give us uh, an example? I mean, I think people sometimes, if they haven't heard the word value-based life or value-based education, give us an example of three common values just so that they can latch onto those terms a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the common values are things like honesty, adventure, integrity, community, spirituality, family. Um, health, humor, 
uh, trust, you know, all of these types of things um, could be things that you want to stand for in your life. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, that's such a great way to be thinking about it and then making decisions and vision boards off that and then creating that blueprint. So hopefully you guys are getting the rhythm of this. If you're out there listening, you know, maybe it starts with identifying your values, then understanding what your vision is for those values, and then understanding what the blueprint or the recipe is to get you there. I think that's, that's such a better way of doing it than again, like you're saying like, Oh, I want this, you know, and then not really having any, anything behind that. Um, before I have to let you go, cause I'm a huge believer in this as well. Why are we predisposed to self-sabotage? Tell me, tell me what you're thinking and what the research says. Why we're predisposed to self-sabotage as a species. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. You know, I think in general, you know, as human beings, um, I, I've talked about this a lot with my patients, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, they're, they're so upset with themselves for having anxiety and worries. They're like, my goodness, why is my mind so nervous all the time and anxious? And I'm always worried about stuff, whether it's going to happen or not. And, you know, I tell them, you have your ancestors to thank in some ways, because when you think back to the caveman days and you think about the people who were, for example, practicing mindfulness while they were which is like a luxury that we have now that we can talk about that versus the people who were nervous Nellies and darting in and out. Like anytime they hear a little noise in the bush, they like run away. Well, guess mm-hmm. who survived? It was the nervous Nellies. <laughs> the right. ones who were practicing mindfulness way be- before their time were eaten by these saber-toothed tigers. <laughs> so oh in some ways, our brains are pre-wired to be a little bit more nervous because those are the ones who survived and those are the ancestors whose brains and genes and, and whatnot that we've all kind of inherited in one way or another. And so our brain is anxious in the way of self-protection, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. the self-protection sometimes goes awry. And I think a lot of this is because sometimes we misinterpret a anxiety, whether it's a thought-based anxiety or like a physiological symptom of anxiety, like your heart starts racing, you know, the fight or flight gets engaged and you misinterpret that as, oh my God, like I must. And sometimes it's not that anything's wrong. It's just that your protective mechanism got engage a little and you have to sort of do the the work to say is there something that I really need to be afraid of right now or do I just need to take a few deep breaths and get over it and and I think sometimes when we notice these negative feelings or notice these physiological reactions we think that it means that something is terribly wrong and then that anxiety actually gets provoked even further and so I think some of it is like understanding like what situations we really need to be anxious and worried about and wonder, oh, it's just my brain trying to protect me, but you know, it's a little overzealous. Let me just talk it down a little bit. And so I think some of it is that discerning, you know, what the difference is and and understanding that just because you feel anxiety doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean something to be anxious about in that moment. Absolutely. Well, this is all such great information. If anybody out there listening today wants to get in touch with you or, you know, wants a copy of the book, I know I do. uh, How would they do that? Tell us what the best way is to stay connected. Absolutely. So they can check out my website at drjudyho.com. That's D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. Or they can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Dr. Judy Ho as well. And I would love to hear from people, get feedback about what they think of the book and the program. And if they sign up for my newsletter, I can also give them some bonus content from the book even before it drops. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, this is, again, like I was telling you when you first came on, this is such an important topic to me because I do believe that we are pre-wired for self-sabotage. And then as women, you know, what we're finding in research is that we carry our emotions, kind of some of this, uh, our thought patterns, we carry it in our DNA and we pass it down for generations. So it is so important for us to learn to rewire the brain and, and learn to balance the voices of self-sabotage so that we are wired for success, but we're not wired to undo ourselves. So thank you so much again. This is an important one for me and for everybody else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, which is now on Spotify as well. And if you have questions about today's show, connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Taz MD. And if you enjoyed the show, let's rate and review and share it with your friends. I'll see you guys next time.